0: Savior. The preaching this afternoon is taken from Revelation chapter 1. We considered earlier verses 12 and through 17 and now we take up verse 17 in particular and 18. So here these two verses as John continues the vision that was given to him. And when I saw him I fell at his feet as dead he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, fear not. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Brethren, as we continue our Consideration of this portion, now focusing on verses 17 and 18, we have the striking testimony of John's response. I fell at his feet as dead. Remember, of course, this is that John who had reposed himself upon the Savior, and now gaining a sight of something of his glory. He's struck and he falls down as dead. He's overwhelmed. Perhaps we see something, not the fullness, but something of what was said to Moses, no man can see my glory and live. And a little breaking forth of that in this vision overwhelms John. John, who was well apprised of the truth, was a teacher of the truth, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, who had himself believed upon the Lord and was now suffering reproach for his faithfulness to the Lord, is now found at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ as dead. It is an astonishing thing how foolish our hearts can be to think of Christ in little ways. And it's helpful for us to see some perspective of his glory given to us. How foolish we can be to think ourselves something. Certainly we have no indication that John was puffed up in pride And there's nothing to lay at his charge in this beyond what is common to all of us in remaining sin. And yet in searching our own souls, we know something of what it is. So soon as we're used to benefit others in the kingdom, or so soon as we receive reproach because of our stance for the king, that we are tempted to be puffed up in ourselves, to think ourselves as something Well, here, of course, we have the answer to that in this glorious sight of Christ, which we considered earlier, we're nothing compared to him, the Lord Jesus. And when once we gain a glimpse of something of his glory as given us in the scriptures, we likewise feel this effect where we almost die because of how perfect Christ is. Remember that this response is not unique to John, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. The angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. And what is it that came to Isaiah but the sense of condemnation? Woe is me, for I am undone. A man of unclean lips, and so on. Remember another apostle, Peter, when he saw the display of Christ's miraculous work, and he falls at it, as it were at his feet as dead, and said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Brethren, when we get a sight of Christ, often the experience is not what we would expect in our casual thoughts of him. Often it actually terrorizes us because we get a sense of how perfect he is, how unblemished he is, how powerful he is, how glorious he is, which necessarily reminds us of how earthly we are, how weak we are, how filled with temptations and even sins we are, that we are ready to fall at his feet as dead, and even with Peter to say, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And yet you'll notice Christ with perfect balance displays his glory to remind John perhaps, to humble John and through John us as well, But immediately following that is this precious word, and. How precious for the Christian that there's an and. With this, there's also something. There's the additional testimony regarding our beloved Savior, who is the glorious Redeemer. That this glorious Redeemer is also the gracious Redeemer. And so what happens He laid his right hand on me, saying, Unto me fear not, and testifying of himself. John's response is most appropriate when we consider what we are in ourselves and what Christ is in himself. And yet, when Christ provides this word, we see there is more than first met the eye. When we see the glory of Christ, we start to think of our own weakness, brokenness, and even sins. But Christ is earnest to testify of something more. And so he testifies to John of his grace. And we'll consider these things this afternoon, that this glorious Redeemer is a Redeemer who is full of grace to his people. Brethren, this is something that you as his people need to remember We need to have high thoughts of Christ, not manufactured thoughts, but sincere, accurate high thoughts of Christ, not things that we make up, not things that we invent, but things that we receive from the word. But we need to remember that with those high thoughts, we also need clear and high thoughts of his grace and what a blessing it is that Christ himself is the one to provide it and to disclose to us that though he has entered upon his glory, he has never left his grace. It's not as if he's gone to glory and now his exercise of grace toward us is finished. Instead, as we read in Hebrews chapter 10, he's gone before us, he's entered within the veil and we follow after, brought by him, sanctified by his very blood and body And so, brethren, we consider three things this afternoon. Firstly, the need for his grace. Secondly, the fountain of his grace. And thirdly, the application of his grace. The need, the fountain, and the application of his grace. So firstly, then, the need for his grace. We see this, of course, with the disclosure of his glory. He gives us a sight of his glory And we start to realize how vain this world is. There's nothing that loosens our hands from the world so much as a clear sight of Christ. This is something that many, even Protestants, have neglected if they've ever known it at all. It does little to loosen the grip of the world merely to tell others you should loosen your grip of the world. We need to do that. We need to warn and admonish and correct and reprove. But brethren, why let lose something? Why let go of something if we're convinced that that's something we're holding on to is the best that we can attain or have? And so what helps loosen our grip is a sight of the glory of Christ, the incomparable glory of Christ, that none is equal to him. Certainly none is above him either. And yet, brethren, so soon as we have that, we enter into the difficult world of realizing glory versus vanity. We start to see that we have followed off in a mirage of our own making, thinking that we're something, when we've been faithful perhaps, when we've been diligent perhaps, when we've been laborious perhaps, when we've been growing and maturing and thinking and speaking and teaching and laboring, and we start to look merely at the scale of men, mere mortals, and we say, you know what, I'm making progress, I'm growing and maturing, But so soon as we look at the perfection of Christ, we cannot help the reflective thought that I'm nowhere close to what he is. I'm nowhere on the scale where he is. It's similar, of course, when Christ is called the good teacher and he says, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. And of course, we know that he's not denying his divinity but he's challenging the man that this isn't a relative statement. It's not like I'm good because I'm just a little bit better than others, but I am absolutely good. God is absolutely good. And we've had something of that here, which tells us the need for his grace. What is it that triggers, as it were, John's response? It's a sight of Christ's glory. It's a sight of who he is, the perfection that he possesses, the glory of his divine person and all of what we considered earlier this morning. The glory of Christ reminds us of the need for his grace. And this is where the gospel is a strange thing for the world, because Christ gets presented to us. And in one sense, Christ presented to us is overwhelming and would almost paralyze us. And yet, when the Lord operates graciously, the Christ who stands perfect in glory is also the Christ who is shown to be most gracious. And it's this Christ that we need. When we come to know something of Christ, we discover necessarily the weakness of our own frame. In this world, we love to live in the comparatives of one another. And so we do it denominationally. And we say, well, they're Presbyterian, but you know they're of those kinds of Presbyterian. Well, they're Christian, but they're that kind of Christian. Well, they're within this denomination, but you know they're that kind of people. And all the while, what's really going on is we're trying to push down the shoulders of others that we can push ourselves up and appear as something significant. All it takes for us to be put in our place is a glimpse of the glory of Christ. It silences us immediately, and it makes us to see that whatever the truth is of comparative differences beyond brothers, and we mean not to say there aren't differences, but whatever those differences are, and however significant they are, we stand infinitely beneath the glory of Christ, that when Christ is shown, it is instantly known that he alone is worthy of praise, We can get it in our minds sometimes that we're worthy of praise. Look what I've suffered. Look what I've gone through. Look what I'm going through. And look how I'm bearing up. Look how I'm not complaining as much. Look how I'm still faithful in these disciplines. Look what I'm doing. And then Christ appears and we say, what was I thinking? My relative goodness is nothing compared to his glory, which is pointing out something to us. And this matched with, of course, the corruption of our own remaining sin makes us to take up Isaiah's words, woe is me, I'm undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And brethren, when we're young, as a Christian, certainly when we're unconverted as well, we have little thoughts about the uncleanness of speech. Speech is almost something that's insignificant to us. Well, I just said it, I didn't do anything, but so soon as the glory of God and His perfection is shown. Our very words, which we thought were nothing, bear such a weight upon our souls as would crush us and undo us, unravel us, and condemn us. And it's interesting that Isaiah saw that and felt that when he saw something of the glorious display of God. Brethren, the need for his grace is made known by the perfect glory of our God, because it reminds us in very clear terms that we have not arrived. And even if we did arrive, we would never have possessed righteousness and perfection as part of something of our nature as God has eternally. God is perfect. Christ is perfect. Never blemished, never at fault. And so what we see in John's response is a testimony of his need for grace. Think of that for a moment, because this is John the Apostle. John who had walked with the Lord, who had seen the risen Christ, who had written inspired epistles, who indeed ministered faithfully and now was suffering, yet at a sight of Christ, whom he knew, whom he proclaimed, yet he was made to sense his weakness again. Well, this reminds us of our need. Notice, secondly, the foundation of his grace, the fountain of his grace. Of course, we could look at the eternal fountain, God's eternal purpose of grace. But we wish to look more fundamentally at what Christ identifies. Because before we get to his putting of his hand upon him, notice what he says is the fountain of this grace. He points out first himself. I am the first and the last. He is the unchanging God. Christ didn't change his mind toward his people. God didn't change his mind toward his people. He is the beginning and the ending. He's the unchanging one. He is the great I am that I am. Remember, That when it was, he was speaking to the Jews, and he said, before Abraham was, I am. They knew what was being said, and so they picked up stones to stone him. He makes himself God, and yet that's because he is God. And yet, brethren, here is something of the fountain of his grace, that all which is to be made known from here on is coming from the unchanging one. Now, for the believer, this is full of a rich thought, that God has never changed his mind toward us. That from eternity, not some point in eternity, but from eternity, God has set his love upon us. And this, of course, is the fountain from which springs all of the blessings that we enjoy. The incomparable person of our Savior, the divine Son of God, is indeed that one who has set upon us an unchanging love. He is the first and the last, but you'll notice he then appeals from his divine person to this redeeming work, this finished work, when he says, I am he that liveth. We could say, instead, he is the living one. The living one. But notice, was dead. The living one, he is the living one who was dead. And brethren, what this presents to us is the gospel in its simplicity. The eternal son of God took to himself humanity, a reasonable soul and a true body. And as the God man lived perfectly in conformity to God's law and offered up himself upon the cross, a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. He is the living one who was dead. He is the eternal son of God who took to himself this humanity and as the incarnate son of God he suffered, all of which has to raise the question as to why. But John's already answered that because you can look at verse 5 and see what what what's said of Christ When John writes unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Anselm wrote a book, which many of you will be familiar with, Why the God-Man? And the answer, of course, that he provides fundamentally is for the atonement, so that he would be able to provide that atoning sacrifice, which was necessitated by our sins but required then the offering up of a human, and yet with such dignity as only divinity could afford it. And this is what we see in Christ. He assumes to himself a true human nature. He's the living one, the eternal son of God. And yet by taking to himself this true human nature, he dies in order to, as it is said, wash us from our sins In his own blood. Now think of what's going on. John is trembling before this glorious display of Christ. And there's no one here who wouldn't do the same. But the comfort that comes is an appeal first to who it is. He's the eternal one. The first and the last. The glorious son of God. But then to what this one has done. His person and his work. The simplicity of the gospel held forth to us in this testimony of Christ regarding himself. Remember who I am, John. You're trembling. I understand it. But remember not only who I am, but what I've done. I'm the one who died. I've not somehow gone off and forgotten you. I've not somehow gone off and changed my mind. I am the living one who was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. He remembers the resurrection. Brethren, on the Lord's Day, we remember every week the Lord's rising from the dead. And there's so much bound in up in that necessarily because if he rose from the dead, that necessarily means he was dead. And so the whole of the gospel is memorialized for us every week on the Lord's Day as we come to this. And if we had eyes to see it, we would approach it with the comfort that Christ provides to John now and to us by this word, because Christ is coming to us by his word and saying, Remember who I am and what I've done. What is it I've done? I've atoned for your sins. And it's not that I've died and I've remained under the power of death, but in rising again, what is that in your being united to me? But the assurance that you also arise. Whatever your weakness is right now, in me there's hope, there's help, there's life, there's encouragement. And so this appeal to Christ himself is the fountain of which all the outflow of every blessing comes to us. Brethren, it's here where we need to live. If you and I are to maintain, if we're ever to gain comfort, and if ever we're to maintain comfort, it is with the simplicity of a conscious faith exercised upon Christ. Now, brethren, this helps us in a number of things to see the error of many false theologies. And so you have, of course, rank liberalism, which says things like, well, Christ isn't truly divine, but his death still does something for us. You know, it shows us a life of sacrifice and a life of love and how we should be charitable and how that gives us fulfillment and help and encouragement. But, brethren, the gospel testifies of the eternal Son of God incarnate who truly died and in his death atoned for the sins of his people and likewise not only truly died but rose again these are supernatural facts of history these are realities that took place in the timeline of this world and this is where we find comfort not in religion Not in piety, not in pious thoughts, not in our works, not in our reformation, not in our increase of doctrine, not in our prayers and other such things. But our comfort is found in the person and work of Christ. And if ever you are to have comfort given to your soul, it will be by Christ. Now there are alternate ways to try and balance out your life and have some degree of comfort, but all of them will require your ignoring of the truth of Christ's glory. And some of you may perhaps be feeling like, I don't want to think about Christ too much in his glory because I know it will instantly evaporate any false comfort I have. I'm contented not to think too much of Christ in his glory because I know if I do... My false comforts will be gone. My morality, which is better than others, will be exposed, and I'll have no comfort. My speech, which is a little better than my friends and co-workers, will be shown to be imperfect, and all of a sudden I'll be left naked before the Lord. You see, Satan is clever in why he keeps men back from thinking about Christ. Because so soon as we think about Christ truly, As he is portrayed to us in the scriptures and as he is in himself, it instantly, as we saw earlier, causes us to see our need. And it also exposes the only source of comfort there is, which is not our praying, which is not our reading, which is not our church attendance, which is not our family order, which is not our being a better wife, a better husband, or any other such thing. Our comfort is exclusively found in the person and work of Christ. There's no other source. Some of you as covenant children have the particular temptation to look at other children your age, and even other covenant children your age, and you look at them and you say, well, I don't talk like they talk. Well, I go to sermons twice on the Lord's Day and our family comes to the midweek prayer meeting and my father does this and my mother does that and I've been catechized and all of these things, all of which are privileges, but they're not actually your comfort. You'll be tempted to think that because you're relatively better than others, perhaps you've had a sibling that has turned aside and that gives you an extra temptation to say, well, here I am still in the home, still faithful to my mom and dad, all of which, of course, is right and good, but none of which is meant to be your comfort. Your only comfort is in this fountain of grace, which is Christ. And so it raises the question, do you know this comfort that is found exclusively in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not meaning, do you know how to recite your comfort, tell others about your comfort, but do you know what it is to place the whole weight of your soul upon him alone and say, he is my hope. The one who has exposed me is also the one who clothes me. The one who points out to me, My shame is also the one who provides me his glory. The one who shows me my guilt is the one also who directs me to my righteousness, which is not in me or my doing, but is in Christ. He laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. If you are here gathered this morning or afternoon without a real focus upon Christ, you're both cheating yourselves from a right view of righteousness, truth, and the standards that God has set forth. And you're excusing yourselves on a vain pretense that you're not as bad as others. And you know that if you were really to consider Christ and who he is, his perfection, his searching eye. And oh, the terror of knowing that what we saw just briefly in the morning, the eyes which are a flame of fires, were they to light upon you, how they would consume the dross instantly and you'd be exposed. But brethren, here's the wonder of grace. This springs from a purpose of kindness to direct you to himself as your only hope. And for the Christian, of course, here is a rich reminder. We who have been exposed and yet are dressed in the righteousness of Christ are here again assured of where our hope is. It's in Christ, his finished work. I am the living one that was dead and I am alive forevermore. And yet even the Christian assured of such pardon and acceptance with God still has to face that last enemy of death. We laugh at death when it's far from us. But when it comes near, we realize why it is referred to as the last enemy. If our bodies become consumed with pain or a difficulty comes to us, then the volume of death is turned up and our souls become alarmed. Or if in our homes or among our circles of relationships, someone seemingly is nearing death, it makes us aware of how precarious life is. And oh no, there's a limited moment in this world. Well, certainly for the unbeliever, that should terrorize his conscience. I will die. But for the Christian even, there can be discouragement. I'm going to die and then what will my life have been? Well, brethren, there's actually encouragement in what Christ says when he says, I have the keys of hell and of death. In Some sense, what he's saying to John is, I'm the one who controls who enters the grave and not. I'm the one who's sovereign over life and death. I have everything perfectly in control. And I stand sovereign. Therefore, fear not. Brethren, to realize that this glorious Redeemer, which we considered briefly this morning, is also this gracious one who controls all things, even death, the last enemy, and is also the source of salvation, having accomplished that historical work, which pardons our sins and reconciles us to God, and gives us an enduring and everlasting hope as he is the resurrection, is indeed a great blessing. But notice thirdly, that Christ is not content simply to reiterate these things to John because it actually says in verse 17 that he laid his right hand upon me. In our own culture, you know, touch, physical embrace is a strange thing because of the errors and sins of some and the scandals and other such cultural differences that may exist among us, but none of us Misunderstand what's going on here. Christ is drawing near with an intensity to say to John, What I'm saying is real for you. I'm coming and I'm applying it unto you. So notice it says, He laid His right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. And so Christ is assuring John of this grace. He does so with his assuring word, fear not. And we've heard that before, haven't we? When he appears after the resurrection, fear not. And other times throughout scripture, God has told his people not to fear. He's assuring them. And this is where we need to live. When we find ourselves moved by our own weakness and sin and so on, when it is that we're able to look upon Christ, it's then that we have a right to take his word Fear not and apply it unto ourselves. Fear not. Why? Well, if you went and took this word to yourself, God has told me to fear not. And if I said, why, are you assured of that? It has to be what we've considered just previously. That it is that you are looking to him who is the first and the last the living one that was dead and is alive forevermore. Who has the keys of hell and of death. What's Jesus saying to to, to John? He's saying, fear not because of me. Fear not because of who I am, because of what I've done. And he closes, as it were, the gap to say, I'm with you and I am yours. The touch is a disclosure of Christ being with John and applying these things to him. He's applying himself personally to John. John is personally distressed, and so Christ personally comforts. And yet he does so by appealing to what he's done, which benefits all of us, which necessarily means that we may derive comfort from Christ by what he's done for us. And yet, brethren, it's far from being a mere intellectual remembrance. The Song of Solomon is rich with description You think of how it opens in verse 2 of the first chapter. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. I want not just the words spoken, but the words as it were applied to me. I want the gap to be closed so that I know Christ with me. In chapter 2 and verse 6 of the same book, his left hand is under my head and his right hand doth embrace me. The language is one of intimacy, and this is what Christ is providing John. John, I am your salvation. Sometimes fathers see their children dismayed, and it's not as if our words are getting through, and so there's a hand placed upon their shoulders, sometimes both hands, and saying, listen to me, son, listen to me, daughter, Here's the truth, whatever it may be. This is what Christ is doing to John. John is overwhelmed. And so Christ comes and says, John, I've not come to condemn you. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one who died and is now alive. Remember, don't you remember who I am and what I've done and I've come for you. Now, it ought not to escape our attention that the whole of history from John's time to the return of Christ is then set forth in the rest of this book of Revelation. And brethren, there's much in this book and much that could overwhelm us and discourage us. But it's intriguing that the source of comfort is not simply what's going to happen at the end. There's comfort to be found there. But it's found in the person and work of Christ applied to us. Brethren, here is where your comfort is is to be found. When we think of the glory of Christ and the overwhelming effect that it has upon us, when we reflect upon our littleness, our weakness, our vanity, our sin and guilt and profanity, when we think about the church and we think of all the obstacles before us, and even in a season like this, when as a denomination we're seeing advances in our presbytery and we're seeing there's encouragement, we know by experience that something's going to happen that's going to be a challenge to the visible encouragements we've received. What must we gird ourselves with in order to maintain assurance and comfort and confidence? It's not in the numbers of churches and ministers and other such things. It is in the person and work of Christ. And this is what fuels the churches marching onward in victory against the empires of the world, against Antichrist, against the unbelief of the world and tortures and imprisonments and all of the persecutions that come. It is the applying of Christ to our souls. That's where comfort is found. That's where assurance is given. And that's where strength is provided. And so all that's about to be unveiled to John of all of the trials, all of the turmoil, all of the difficulties that history should, as it were, live out in this world are all suitably provided for in the comfort of knowing Christ for us. Now, if that's true of the whole of the history of the remaining time of this world, surely that includes your life. You don't know what's going to come today. You don't know what's going to come tomorrow. You don't know what temptations and trials and difficulties are heading down the road at full speed to meet you head on in your lives. But you should, as a Christian, know what this sure ground of your comfort and peace is. It's the person and work of Christ for sinners. I am he that was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. It's the person and work of Christ, personally given to us, that is able to sustain our souls in the darkest of seasons, in the strongest of temptations, and in the heaviest of difficulties, all that's going to be made known in the rest of this book is able to be faced because Christ loved us, died for us, and rose again. Now, brethren, that's a truth for the believer. What comfort does an unbeliever have? If you're seated here this afternoon as an unbeliever, whatever your profession whatever your age, whatever your name on a roll or not might be, you are to face the rest of your life in this world without the only sure ground of peace, comfort, and assurance. And what's worse, as it stands right now, you're to face the flaming, fiery eyes of Christ on the last day when he gathers all the nations to himself, And you will face that without Christ having been applied to you. You think for a moment and understand in an instant why you don't want to think about your sins because the vanity of your comforts will not carry the weight of your soul on that moment. But here's the wonder... Christ who overwhelms us with conviction is the Christ who undergirds and surrounds us with his grace. He appeals as he will later on, for instance, in the last appeal to the churches in Revelation in chapter 3, when he testifies to the Laodiceans and says, I know thy works, verse 15, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. What a wonder, verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Christ exposes us in mercy in order to provide us that which is required for everlasting life. Well, dear believer, it's right for us to be humbled with a true perception of Christ. But it's wrong for the believer to be paralyzed and to be set aside, as it were, with nothing of hope. As we're humbled by Christ, it is actually to draw us to his person and work applied to us. It is to provide us the true ground of comfort which only he affords as we receive and embrace him by faith alone. Here is the answer, believer, to all of the fears that hinder your faithful service to him. It is to be consumed with Christ. Surely there are books that you should read. Surely there are sermons you should listen to. But fundamentally, if they are not directing you to the believing consideration of Christ You'll never be strengthened to faithful service. You'll never be strengthened to deny yourself, to face temptation, to overcome temptation. It's not just Christ known about. It must be Christ known. And this is what Christ is providing John and thus Would hold forth to us. Fear not. His hand upon us as it were. By his word. Gripping us by his spirit. Providing us the assurances of these truths. And when it is that Christ grips us. Then it is that being gripped by Christ. We're able to face the whole of history before us. Personally. Nationally. Internationally. With the assurance that come what may. May. He who holds the keys of hell and of death is the one who died for me and overcame death. So whether I live or die, I stand victorious. There was, in recent days, a Christian woman from a different congregation who was taken with cancer and she died just a couple of weeks ago. And it was reported of her when the doctor came and said, You know, we have some treatments, but we're not sure whether it is it's going to be to your healing or ultimately to your undoing. And she was able in faith to say, well, whether I live or I die, I'm the winner because I have Christ. And brethren, this is actually where our confidence has to be in affliction, in illness and in health and in strength. That because Christ has me, I stand as one who will stand victorious in the end. That whether I die a common death or I die a death of a martyr, because of Christ gripping me, because of Christ's work for me, because of Christ, I have assurance that all is well. Brethren, here is the answer to your fears. It's Christ's embrace of you which leads you then to embrace him. Why is it that we so often entertain fears? Is it not because we stray from the simplicity of Christ crucified for us? Communion seasons are sweet seasons, but fundamentally they're sweet because they hold forth the love and the loving work of Christ for us famous minister in our own denomination years back, testified in his older age that he used to think, I want to be in the doctrinal epistles so much and so on, and there's reason for that. But he said, as I've aged, I've realized I want to be more in the gospels, which gives so much clarity as to the person of Christ and his work displayed on every page, because I found it both personally strengthening and encouraging. And publicly, the more that Christ is displayed so simply, so clearly, the people are strengthened and motivated to deny themselves, bear their crosses, follow Christ, and what's more, to do so with joy. Isn't it true that all of us know something of what it is to bear our cross and yet to do so with some complaining? It is not really all of that difficult to do certain outward things, but it is utterly impossible to deny ourselves, bear our crosses with joy, except we do so because of Christ. And so it is for us. Why do we fear? Why do we struggle? Why do we tremble? But because we fail to hear the gracious words of Christ reporting to us and applying to us his work on our behalf. Well, believer, here is your source of comfort. And strange as it may seem, it is the glorious Redeemer who is the gracious Redeemer who is your comfort in life and in death. And so should you grow in faith, diligence, faithfulness, obedience, self-denying obedience at that, it will be only as you have your eyes fixed upon the person and work of our beloved Savior, who, as John said, who loved us and washed us from our own sins in his own blood. Would you stand with me for prayer? God in heaven, as we think on these things, we confess your word is so plain and clear regarding our comfort, our assurance, our peace. And Yet we are often of a divided mind, and so soon as we come, as it were, upon the borders of this life of grace and fellowship with Christ, we become diverted just to look at the borders. So soon as we near the entrance of the gate, we stop and pause and perhaps even tell others of the gate, we fail to enter in to enjoy that which is ours by grace, which Christ has purchased us. Oh God, we pray, leave us not in our worry and fear and anxiety. Leave us not in our false comforts which can not stand up against the fiery eyes of the glorious Christ. But please draw us to know his right hand placed upon us, testifying, fear not, for I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I live forevermore. I have the keys of hell and of death. O Lord, consume us with the thoughts of the person and work of Christ for us. And in him, may we then walk forth in firm and full persuasion of his grace and devotion to his cause, spending and being spent for his glory alone until that day when he calls us unto himself and we receiving a crown from him will gladly cast it at his feet. Lord, we cannot help but pray for the unconverted in our midst and ask, O Lord, that you would expose their vanity, that you would make them to tremble at the sight of so glorious a one as we have considered. And yet, as they would come before him and cast themselves at his feet as dead, that they might know him saying with his hand upon them, fear not, directing them to believe upon him whose death cleanses us from our sin. So answer our prayers, bring glory to your name, and forgive us our sins for Jesus' sake.